Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. All right, so I think one topic that um, has a tendency to create a lot of confusion for folks in the industry these days is human factors. And and maybe more importantly, the relationship between human factors and design controls. Well, good news. have a couple of experts on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast to dive into some of those details. I have Russ Brannigan and Bryant Foster from Research Collective, and we dive into the relationship between human factors and design controls. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because, you know, we've talked about human factors in the past. We've talked about design controls in the past and, and risk management and all these sorts of things. And, you know, sometimes I think about, you know, there's a Venn diagram if you look at risk and design control and human factors. There's certainly a relationship between these topics some might even say it's they're all the same thing. I, I don't know. We'll dive into that. But the good news is I've got a couple of experts joining us on uh, the episode today. I have Russ Brannigan. Russ is the president and chief scientist at Research Collective. And I have his colleague, Bryant Foster. Bryant is the VP of Human Factors and User Experience at Research Collective. Gentlemen, welcome. Well, thank you. Good to be here. Awesome. So I thought we would dive in today and talk a little bit about human factors and design controls. Does that sound okay with you guys? I know you live this every day, so I figured you'd have a lot to contribute on this. Absolutely. One of our favorite topics. And of course, at some point, you know, I want to, the folks, and maybe now is actually a good time. Russ or Brian, one of you, do you mind maybe giving a kind of a 30-second overview of what Research Collective is all about and, and, and what you do and how you help companies? Absolutely. So we're a human factors and user experience uh, consultancy. Majority of our work is in uh, medical devices, and we're particularly interested in designing medical devices that are easy to learn and efficient to use, satisfying, and so forth. But the real benefit of that is it has a tendency to reduce use error, and as a result, leads to better patient outcomes, fewer the sort of difficulties using the device, more efficient medicine, and so on. So in that way, it really does relate to, to risk and risk reduction. Yeah, the absolutely. idea is we do things to reduce risk, and, and the human is probably the most and most complex part of that, and that's, that's where we focus. That's terrific. So uh, let's just dive right in. I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, I've been in this industry now for over 20 years, and and, uh, you know, I started my career, as, a, uh, as most listeners have probably picked up by now, as a product development engineer. And, and I always, you know, I, I guess as a product development engineer, I always thought about or considered that, you know, there are going to be humans using the products that I'm designing and developing. So I guess I'm a little curious from your perspective, why do we pay so much attention to human factors in, in 2019? Well, for me, I think a couple of things. You mentioned product development and what goes into it. And typically in product development, you have experts in all kinds of areas. So you'll have experts in mechanics and electronics and marketing and accounting and all of these kinds of things. 
But interestingly, the people who use the product are human beings, and the people who buy the product or make decisions to buy the product are human beings, and we're using them on human beings. But interestingly, in these product development processes, you rarely have people who have decided to study human beings for a living. And there's an awful lot to know about people, about human beings. And it's, it's kind of important that we're just as rigorous in studying these folks and designing for these folks as we are in getting the mechanics and the electronics and so forth correct. So that's kind of the idea is, boy, if we're really going to be serious about reducing risk, then we need to know some of the scientific knowledge that's out there about how people work, how they make decisions, how they learn, and so forth. And if we can integrate that into our design, then we're doing a good job. The, the, the issue is that just good intentions aren't enough. So there's plenty of folks that become very interested in doing this, and I applaud them for doing that, but they don't usually have the training um, and, you know, frankly, years of studying uh, folks in the lab and in context. So it, it would be sort of like deciding that, well, you know, I've really become interested in mechanics recently, so I'm going to become a mechanical, I'm going to start doing mechanical engineering work. The notion is that, sure, absolutely, go do that, but it typically requires an awful lot of training and awful lot of background. And, and I think that's our job is to be as expert as possible at that and as rigorous as possible at that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Brian, anything that you would contribute to, to that? No, I think, you know, at its core, you know, uh, one of the things I like about your podcast and, and hearing you speak on several occasions is, you know, the, the notion that the regulations are are great. And, and you know, it's, it's nice that the, someone cares enough to put a regulation in place. But at the at its core, we're designing things uh, ultimately to help people. Um, and that's especially true of medical devices. And uh, so when we talk about design input or sorry, design controls um, and human factors, they're at their core, they really are intended to make things better, um, safer, uh, more effective for the people that will benefit from them. Um, and, and so I think, you know, as this discussion goes along, we'll talk about kind of how these two, how human factors dovetails into the design process and, um, you know, the design control regulation. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I think uh, that's sort of a key point, number one, and I'm sure we'll uncover maybe a few others uh, in our conversation today. But key point number one, folks, if you're designing a product just because you're trying to satisfy uh, a regulation, you kind of miss the point. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. to, to Russ and Brian's point, you know, humans are involved with the products that we're designing and developing. So we have to certainly factor those humans into this equation. And that's, you know, a part and parcel why we're uh, chatting today. And, and maybe it's a little obvious, and, and but maybe not. So I guess, you know, folks, two experts on the, on the call today from Research Collective, Brian and Russ, um, gentlemen, how would you define human factors? Maybe give us kind of an interpretation of, of what this includes, maybe what it doesn't include. Yeah, so there actually is, a, there's several very good definitions, but the idea is human factors is the area that um, applies all the human sciences. So by what we mean by human sciences is that includes all of the allergies, uh, like sociology, psychology, physiology, etc. Applying that to the design of products, 
uh, also the designer processes and training material and so forth. It also includes the uh, application of uh, medical field and so on. But the idea is to take the knowledge that's out there about those areas studying human beings and applying it to product design. So there's really two components to it. There's kind of a, a an evaluation component where we've got a product and we're off trying to figure out, boy, how well does this work? What kinds of mistakes do people make? How do we fix that? Um, but there's there's also the component that's focused on design, which is understanding not only how to design something, but boy, what should we be designing to begin with? What are the hassles that people have? What are the needs they have and so forth? What kinds of problems are they having in their day-to-day life? So it ends up being kind of a, uh, an activity that's involved from the beginning to the end um, and, and having those two components, which is evaluation and, uh, and design. All right, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I think there's sometimes there's terminology confusion, and I'm glad you set us straight on on the human factor side of things. But there's a couple other terms that that um, sometimes enter the lexicon. I think at least they have over the past several years that may relate to human factor. So I want to kind of get your take on this. So the two terms are usability. And I know we're going to talk, or I plan to talk a little bit about usability with respect to human factors here in a bit. But usability uh, oftentimes comes up. Uh, another term that, that comes up, I, I think, on this general topic is ergonomics. So can you maybe spend a moment and kind of compare and contrast human factors versus usability versus ergonomics? Are these the same thing? Are they different things? They're they're so related that they're almost synonymous. I can give you some background in usability. Usability is really has just a few components. So a usable system is something that's easy to learn. Uh, once you learn it, it's efficient to use. It tends to be memorable, so that if you went away on vacation and then came back and had to use the device again, you uh, remember how to use it. You don't have to get up to speed again. And then finally, it's, um, it, frankly, it's satisfying. It's one of these things that you don't mind using. So those are the four sort of components, uh, ease, of, ease of learning, efficiency of use, memorability, and sort of subjective satisfaction, they call it. And a fellow named Jacob Nielsen sort of identified these things about 25 years ago. Human factors and ergonomics, interestingly, are the same things. Um, so typically, in Europe, they refer to it as ergonomics. In the U.S., they refer to it as human factors, but they're the same things. Now, they do have slightly different connotations for some reason, um, but the fact is that the slightly different connotations are that ergonomics often refers to things that happen below the neck, so, you know, kind of physical kinds of aspects, and human factors tend to happen above the neck, that is, cognitive types of things. But those are just connotations. The actual fact is they're really the same things. It's just a geographic difference. Oh, well, that's good to know. I, I yeah. didn't realize the above the neck, below the neck uh, exactly. notion, but that's, that's interesting. All right. So, yeah. I mean, you guys deal a lot with all kinds of devices, uh, all types of products and that sort of thing. And and I guess you know, you probably have some some um, best practices or some advice on to when uh, to get involved from a human factors perspective. I mean, is it too early? Is it too late? Give us a little bit of context uh, as to when uh, human factors should be involved in uh, product design and development efforts. 
Sure. So the easy answer would be as early as possible, but I'll explain a little bit about what I mean by that. Being that we're kind of talking about design controls and and human factors together, I'll I'll refer back to the design controls. Um, And the first part of the design control regulation is understanding user needs. Um, And as Russ has talked about, the the whole, uh, all of what we do as human factors practitioners is think about the users. And, And so I feel like we're really good at helping manufacturers or people with ideas for medical devices understand more and uh, have a better, a deeper understanding of their users, which includes kind of who they are, you know, what their training in, includes, what kinds of um, limitations they might have uh, and capabilities. Um, also things like the environment in which they work, or maybe there's multiple environments, uh, because all of those things will really influence and impact how uh, that that team or, or group goes about designing their product. Um, so we, you know, we can do that early on, and um, we do that through uh, sometimes observation. So going out into the context of use uh, and you know seeing people actually using a product, maybe um, a predicate device, or uh, or just seeing kind of people in their natural habitat, um, and kind of feeding that back into uh, things we might know about the design. For example, if, if someone is using a product at home, we might design it much differently than we would if we were designing something to be used um, in the hospital. So knowing those things ahead of time can uh, kind of set the design off on a course that is is meeting those user needs right off from the front. Um, and then throughout the process, uh, as the, the device continues to be developed, we would uh, check back in with those users, with those people who would be using the product um, and seeing if the product that we're making um, is actually meeting those needs that we identified in the beginning. Uh, And that's where uh, we'll get into another term, uh, formative usability testing or just formative evaluations. Um, Those come into play there because we now have something physical, um, a prototype of some sort that we can take out and um, and put it in front of the people who might be using it, have them actually perform real tasks uh, that they might need to perform once the device is completed um, and see you know where it where it meets their needs and maybe where it doesn't um, and give those uh, kind of provide those uh, design recommendations back into the design so that we can align it better with those user needs and make sure that we're continuing on the process of creating a, a product that, um, indeed is usable um, and, and meets the needs of the users. Yeah, that's, that's a really good overview. And, and I think this is one of the areas where I've seen, you know, in my experience, a lot of companies really struggle, especially with, you know, that user needs stage. I mean, I think historically that user needs almost is not given uh, the proper due diligence or the, the proper attention during design and development. <clears throat> uh, I think there's, a lot of times engineers want to rush into and start defining, you know, specific design input requirements. But, you know, I think it's, you hit on a couple of points. You talked about the extremes or, or, or some extremes where home use versus, you know, in a controlled environment type of setting. I mean, that, those are sort of obvious things. But, I mean, how much emphasis would you put on, on the importance of user needs? Seems like it'd be pretty important regardless of, of the type of device. 
Yeah, it's absolutely critical. If you think about what we're trying to do here, our our work should be generally evidence-based. So we're off trying to figure out, okay, what's the evidence for various types of design decisions? And and the evidence of those uh, things are, you know, actually in the context of use. So if you understand, you know, your users and their tasks and what they're trying to do, their goals and so forth, really there's an infinite number of products one could design as long as you understand your users well enough. But I think instead what ends up happening is it's still often technologically driven. And we think, okay, what can we do with this technology? And we sort of dream it up. And then we work backwards to figure out, hey, is it possible anybody really wants this? Is it possible that you know anybody can use this? And it really does put the cart before the horse as opposed to understanding people's needs really deeply and then thinking about well, boy, if we really knew this sort of population, if we really knew their tasks, if we really knew their their chores or their tasks inside and out, then frankly, we could develop a whole number of things to make their lives a lot easier. I love that notion because I, I think um, I was talking to a, a customer earlier today, kind of catching up with where they were in their product development journey. And, you know, they talked about they're on... Um, I think they said their 10th or 11th uh, iteration or prototype of their product. And I, I think that, that that's really key to kind of understand that user needs can, can help uh, you identify a litany of possibilities. Whereas if you don't give it the due diligence and the proper focus early on in a project, you, you kind of paint yourself in a corner. That, that's exactly right. And I think that's one of the things Brian was saying kind of early on, the sooner we get involved, the better. So if you think about how this works, early on in the design, you can entertain really any number of alternatives. And if you make any one change, well, it hardly costs a thing when it's early. <laughs> but as you start making decisions and get down the product development process, as you said, you paint yourself into a corner with each uh, successive uh, decision. And now if you start making changes, well, it starts getting to be more expensive. And towards the end, if it's close to, you know, product release time, you know, you, you can make very few changes. You start doing things like, oh, we'll include, you know, we'll, we'll improve the uh, instructions for use, for example, so that people know how to use it. And if you make any change to the product, I mean, it is just prohibitive. And it's certainly not something you want to start telling your management about to say, hey, you know what, I, I probably should have recognized that uh, the product should have different characteristics to begin with. That's a really good tip. And folks, I always, um, you know, when I talk about, uh, you think about des- or, or coach people on design controls and, and how to manage this process, if you will. I mean, this, when you get into like user needs, it's, it's good to think about those options, but you have to think about, you know, from a from a you know overall design and development perspective, eventually at some point in time before you go to market, you you need to demonstrate that your product meets those needs of the end user, and so you know putting the the, the weight on that is is really key. And um, so you got to think ahead. You know you got to think about you know if if these are the specific user needs, how are we going to prove or demonstrate that at some point? Not just for the sake of checking a box on a form. But you need to have the, the objective evidence to show that your product works and, and meets those needs of the end user, that you've designed the correct product to solve you know, whatever challenge it is that you're, you've set out to do to begin with. So it's really important to kind of be forward thinking when you're defining this. 
Uh, folks, I want to remind you while I'm talking with two experts on human factors. I'm talking with Russ Brannigan. He's the president and chief scientist at Research Collective and his colleague, Bryant Foster. Bryant is the VP of Human Factors and User Experience at Research Collective. You can learn a whole bunch more about what they're doing and how to interact and work with them and, and engage them early and often throughout your design and development efforts. Simply go to research collective.com to learn more. Uh, while I have this quick break, I want to remind you all that, uh, we, we, did you know that Greenlight Guru, we, we recently launched a brand new podcast. Yep, that's right. We have a new podcast. It's called MedTech True Quality Stories. I'm loving this new flavor, if you will. We are uh, talking with medical device professionals, folks that are in the trenches, uh, executives, product developers, and so on, and, and learning some of their true quality stories, some of the things that they've been faced with and, and how they've overcome those things in order to bring new exciting products to market. So wherever you're listening to this podcast, you'll be able to also find MedTech True Quality Stories. Yep, it's on iTunes, it's on SoundCloud, everywhere else that you might be listening to podcasts, you want to go check that out. It's really exciting. So share that with your your colleagues and your friends and uh, love hearing these stories. So be sure to check that out. All right. So uh, gentlemen, let's get back to this. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, still in the human factors realm, but let's uh, explore a little bit more in depth. Let's go into usability testing and let's get a better understanding for what that's all about and when that is, does that apply. So what types of products or devices would require usability testing? So in terms of FDA, you, you're going to have your class two and class three products that are going to require human factors testing. And they kind of, it kind of matches up with the same requirements for design control. So there's a few uh, class one products in there as well. And, you know, usability testing, as, as we mentioned early on, it, not only is it a, a regulation and something that is going to be required, but it is just helpful to see people using the products you know, before you, you launch them. There's so many things we learn through usability tests when we see people actually using the products that are pretty eye-opening a lot of times to the product team. Um, and I want to make reference to uh, the ultimate guide to design controls that, John, you posted, uh, I think, last year, maybe the year before on, on your website. Um, and I, I was looking at that in preparation for this. And one of the things you have uh, when we talk about making the decisions for what to design, um, that would fall into the design input category of design controls. And you say, um, and I totally agree with this, that design input should be objective and measurable. Um, so often, you know, we'll, we'll see design inputs that say things like, okay, our product needs to be easy to use. Um, well, how do you define that? And, and what does that actually mean? I think uh, a better uh, design input would be something like people need to make this uh, connection in three seconds or less because there's some implication if they don't. Um, and that would be measurable. And then through a usability study, we can actually measure this before we go to market. So the only way to really check to see if our design inputs are being met um, is actually observing the, the people performing those tasks. Uh, so, so there's the formative, as I mentioned before, formative studies where we're still in the process of designing and refining, perfecting the product, um, ultimately leading to what the FDA um, would actually require, which is the validation usability study. Um, and the validation st uh, usability study 
um, should represent a culmination of the usability work that you've done along the way to make sure that people can use the product. We like to um, say that the validation study should be more of a victory lap than anything else. Um, but but often uh, it's not that way. Uh, most of the time, it seems like you know, the the groups are going in hoping that okay that you know we've designed this product, we thought about our users, we tried, we we made it usable. Um, and then they go into the validation study and they're surprised by the results that aren't as positive as they would hope and might cause them not to actually be able to to get approved or or cleared. So, and can I can do you mind if I interject yeah. here for a moment? Not at all. That last comment I think is really important because I, in my experience and and ob- observing what people do and how they en- embrace human factors, it seems to me that there's an overwhelming uh, or large percentage of companies or, or product development projects where the first time they, they uh, formally think about human factors is at this usability stage. And, and, and you hit on something I think is really important. It should be the victory lap, so to speak. You know, it shouldn't be any surprises, but a lot of times this is where I see companies where they first think about human factors is when they realize, oh, wow, we have to use some, do some usability. Yeah. And, you know, when I think about human factors, you know, it fits into um, the performance data that's going to be required for the submission. Um, And, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't get to the very end and then try to do a clinical study to determine if your product um, is is effective. Right. You you would want to make sure that that is done well ahead of time, because if it turns out that it isn't, then you can make adjustments and and ensure that it is before you uh, get you know to launch. Um, and I think human factors really should be thought of in the same way. You want to make sure that people can use the product um, well ahead of your design freeze, um, because uh, once you've frozen a design and you're ready to go to market, uh, if, if your human factors or usability testing identifies some issues, um, it's really hard to go back and make those changes. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's really good uh, insight. So, um you know, I guess I'm a little bit curious. I mean, and, and obviously, Research Collective, you you do you know all things uh, human factors related, correct? I mean, it's you're not just particularly. Fo- I think you have to be to be an expert in human factors. You have to be kind of full stack, so to speak, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the idea from our, from our group is we've decided to focus uh, solely on human factors, and uh, as a result, we've gone off and uh, gotten. Some, some awfully good specialists in this area. They typically have master's or doctoral degrees uh, in human factors or sometimes what's called human systems engineering, which is more of a, a more recent term for human factors. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's their life's chosen work. And I got to imagine you've got your finger on the pulse as to where one might go to learn more about human factors. I'm sure your website has uh, a ton of invaluable information, but what are some other sources that people can can uh, check out to learn more about human factors? Yeah, great question. So um, we do uh, have information on our website and we uh, keep a, um, a blog that we, that we uh, post to pretty regularly, um, trying to, uh, again, like you mentioned, the finger on the pulse of, of human factors. I think there's great documents out there uh, that people can access for free. Um, and uh, these are, so I'll just mention the FDA Human Factors Guidance, which is um, titled Applying Human Factors and Usability Engineering to Medical Devices. 
And then for international standards, uh, the document is IEC 62366. Um, and there's a 62366-1, which is uh, the standard, and then a technical report, um, 62366-2, that explains um, some of the early research uh, that can be done to um, you know, the more the formative research that you can do uh, as you're designing the product. Um, but the, but again, these are um, what I like to think of, if you think of it like uh, the high jump, they're kind of the low bar. Um, and uh, I, unfortunately, I think what they do sometimes is they uh, um, convey what, what, abs what, what the like lowest requirement is, which is, you know, passing this validation test at the very end. Um, but I think what happens is when uh, manufacturers shoot for that, um, it, they come up a little short. And so uh, implementing, so understanding that that is the ultimate goal, but applying some of these things like we talked about, um, understanding the user needs a little bit deeper, doing formative evaluations to make sure the product meets those user needs along the way, can make sure that when you do get to that final hurdle of the validation um, study or validation usability study, that you actually can clear it. Yep. I, I should also mention in the in the category of uh, uh, shameless plug, we uh, also offer classes on on human factors and so forth. And of course, we'd be uh, happy to provide those uh, for people who who are interested. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I don't think it's a, a shameless plug at all. I think it's wonderful because this is a topic that um, you know there's. It could be overwhelming. I mean, I'm, <clears throat> Brian, I'm glad you mentioned the the FDA guidance and the IEC standard. I mean, those to your point. I mean, it, it's kind of minimum expected behavior, so to speak. Uh, and you know, folks, keep in mind that the guidance documents and standards, while helpful, uh, they are uh, snapshots in time, and that time was years ago, many times. So it doesn't always reflect the latest, greatest, uh, best practices and, and thinking on the topic. So, you know, this is why a, a resource like Research Collective is so invaluable for you to keep in mind because, you know, they... They, they know where this go the, they're experts number one and, and secondly they, they know where things are moving and they're adapting their practices uh, you know their, their solution offering to, to keep you not only uh, in line with with from a regulatory perspective but what's important to your patients and to the users and to the humans who are going to be using and interacting with your products so be sure to check that out in fact Brian I think I recall that uh, you've got a training course coming up sometime later this year on, on the topic, right? Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, so I um, have gotten involved in uh, RAPS, the Regulatory Affairs Professional Society, um, over the last couple of years, trying to round out my regulatory knowledge. Because again, as, as Russ mentioned, I come to this focus more on human factors, but within medical devices, it's, it's important for us to understand Kind of the regulatory landscape. And so as I've gotten involved in that, I've talked to the training group there and they've agreed to have a design controls and human factors course uh, that will be done this summer. So I'll be teaching that along with a, a regulatory consultant named Margaret Koga. And that is going to be August 28th and 29th um, in uh, Southern California. Uh, I think it's Costa Mesa to be exact. Okay. And that's a, an in-person uh, session, correct? Correct. Yep. Uh, 30 seats. All um, right. It's not on their website yet, uh, but I expect to see it up there um, on their calendar soon. 
All right. And, and folks can, uh, in the meantime, before it gets published, they can reach out to you directly, I'm sure, to learn more about that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, folks, connect with Bryant Foster. You can go to research-collective.com uh, to learn how to get in touch with them. Just I'm, I know they have a contact page. You can reach out to him. Uh, his email, um, I hope it's okay. I, I share your email, Bryant. <laughs> um, all right, it's Bryant, B-R-Y-A-N-T at research-collective.com. If you're interested in that course or any of the other courses, um, feel free to reach out to Bryant uh, and, and learn you know, how and where and, and when to sign up and all those sorts of things. So I guess just a couple more um, things I wanted to explore a little bit while we have a few minutes left on this episode. So I guess being, uh, I guess, somewhat of a devil's advocate, so to speak, can, can I just do the human factors testing all by myself? Why do I need you? Why do I you know, need to involve others? Why can't I just do this myself? Yeah, you know, it, it is a great question. Um, and I think people are often interested in doing this to save money and, and so forth. But I, I think it's like a lot of things, at least the first time, and, and you can do it uh, to some degree yourself. Uh, the first time you're trying anything new, we have a tendency to sort of stumble through that thing. You know, there's it, always a learning curve on, on everything we do. Um, and as you're doing that, I mean, it's a terribly inefficient process and you run risks. So risks of doing it wrong, risks of making mistakes and so forth. And these are things that you're running off and submitting to FDA. So in that sense, it increases your, your risk, it increases the amount of time and expense that you spend on it personally. It's not that it's free simply because, you know, you're, you're doing it yourself. You uh, personally are worth a, a fair amount of money in terms of your regular work. So in that sense, it's, it's sort of like going to a specialist at least the first time or second time through um, because working with us, uh, for example, you end up learning an awful lot about how to do this to begin with so that maybe the third or fourth time you can do it yourself. But at least the first or second times, you're really getting the, the confidence of knowing that you're doing it right. And I think that matters a lot. So I often think about it as not only getting the work done, but a fair amount of just-in-time training uh, at the same time. So I'm thrilled that people are pursuing this at all. And, you know, regulatory has had a lot to do with that, making sure that people uh, pursue it. So I'm pretty excited about this as a guy who studies, who's been studying human factors for 30 years, that people are interested in it. It's just that I think for the first few times, it really makes sense to work with a specialist and get the get the skills under your belt. Well, to your point, I mean, you've been doing this 30 years. Uh, Research yeah. Collective, this is the, the sole focus of your business. I mean, you're experts. Um, yeah, yeah I... I yeah, I'm an expert in quality systems. I'm an expert in design controls. And, and so, you know, it just, we can teach you, we can, we can help with putting some quote training wheels on and, and teaching you what to do and when to do it. But, but, you know, that first time you're going through this, it could be a little overwhelming and, you know, nothing's worse uh, than getting to the point where you think you're at the end and you think you're about to cross the finish line and you're about to go to market and launch and, and you get a, a question back from a regulatory submission like, what about this and what about that? Or, or you learn during that usability testing and, that, you know, wow, things didn't go so well. That, those, are, those are not ideal times to, to find out those, those types of things. No, um, I, think, I think the cost of that and the, the hit to your, to your reputation and just plain old heartache <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, really uh, too, too much to, to risk. 
So, I mean, you uh, talked about it earlier, like the 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 cost uh, of making an iteration while you're at that user need stage is is uh, a lot more. Uh, uh, tolerable than, than being, you know, right before you go to market. I mean, I'm, I, I don't know, know what the official name of this, uh, uh, quote rule is. Uh, I always refer to it as the one ten one hundred. Uh, yep. and, and, uh, I, there's probably some formal name to that. I don't, do you know what it is by chance? You know, I, I was just thinking about this. If there's not, there should be. Maybe it's the uh, one, maybe, maybe it's called the one ten one hundred rule. I don't know. <laughs> well, well it is now. I think you've got it, uh, <laughs> Yep, you've got it for uh, posterity. Well, and let me, you and I, uh, we know what we're talking about, but folks, the one ten one hundred rule, let me paraphrase or summarize this briefly. The, the notion is that if you uh, are early in development and making a change or an iteration, it's going to cost you, quote, a dollar. And a little bit later, uh, it'll cost you making a change it will maybe cost you $10 a little bit later, $100 a little bit later, 1000 So it's an, like this exponential uh, quote rule that the later the, the change is made, the more expensive it is because of all the things that, that are impacted by that. So 110-100, I'm sure there's probably some Wikipedia page or something like that. Go look it up and, and check it out for yourself. Yeah. Um, and and right. believe, believe me, I will go look this up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So I, I thought, uh, you know, kind of one uh, thing to kind of wrap up our conversation today and, and you know, kind of getting into the details a bit of, of human factors. Can you combine, and maybe it might make sense to define this a little bit, but can you combine formative studies and validation studies? You know, they, they really are different things. I think what happens is... Uh, you know, this happens to us. We get this question a lot when the group is coming in at the very end of the game and they say, you know, hey, there's a couple of things we want to learn about our product, um, but at the same time, we need to validate it. Uh, and so, you know, really, they, they're two different things. The formative uh, studies or evaluations are, are meant to be done, as I've said, along the way to inform the product design um, and really, the validation should be its its own standalone thing, uh, because at that point, we're not. The goal of the validation study is not to learn anymore; it is to demonstrate um, through uh, evidence that people can use this product effectively. Um, so th they really, they really can. Yeah. In fact, I'll. Yeah. Good. I was going to say it even stronger. Absolutely not. <laughs> they they really need to be different things. Their purpose is different. Um, you know, what we're trying to do in these formative studies is kind of ferret out all of the, the usability problems that we can find um, so that they can be fixed. So pretty straightforward. If Think about it as, you know, benchtop testing and other areas and so forth. But yeah, that validation has to be one where we're actually demonstrating that uh, this is not going to likely cause any undue risk uh, I'm sorry, use errors and, and so on. And under the best, in fact, I had never heard this phrase or Bryant used this phrase, um, but what we're shooting for and under the best of circumstances is it's a victory lap. In other words, we've gone through this and you, you've got confidence going into it. And I've got to tell you, it's a completely different experience when you've got confidence going into a validation test than when you don't. Um, oh, for sure. One, one's very enjoyable and the other is anything but. 
Absolutely. I've been there, done that on both sides, uh, <laughs> yep, sadly, yep. but I, I, yeah, I can totally relate. So gentlemen, I know we're just skimming the surface of human factors, but I appreciate you taking time to enlighten us a bit about what's important about human factors. And I tell you what, you know, maybe we can have uh, some additional uh, sessions and, and episodes where we dive a little bit deeper in some of the uh, the nuances of human factors, if that's okay with you. Oh, we'd be thrilled. Absolutely. All right, folks, I want to remind you, I've been talking with Russ Brannigan, President and Chief Scientist, and Brian Foster, VP of Human Factors and User Experience. Both are with Research Collective, research-collective.com. Go check out what they're doing and, and reach out to them and connect with them. They're happy to help you along this uh, your med device journey. Uh, speaking of, uh, have you checked out or heard about the Greenlight Guru True Quality Roadshow? Yeah, that's right. There's a good chance that we're going to be coming to a city near you. So far, stops have included Indianapolis, Atlanta, and Boston. And uh, in fact, uh, our friends at Research Collective will be joining us at uh, two of the upcoming roadshows later this year in San Francisco, as well as in San Diego. So go check that out. You can just type in Greenlight Guru Roadshow and uh, you'll get the link to the page and you can sign up. We're going to be visiting Houston, Minneapolis, Orange County, San Diego, San Francisco, and and probably uh, quite a few other cities uh, into 2020 as well. So go check that out. Folks, uh, thanks as always for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. As you know, Greenlight Guru is here to help you improve the quality of life, uh, help you get products to market faster, that are safer, that are minimized from a risk perspective. You know, we're all about making sure those humans know what to do when they get your product and, and that it's going to make a difference. So you know, along the way, you're going to be dealing with your quality system, your design controls, your risk, you know, hopefully not, but maybe some CAPAs and some customer feedback back. You know, we built an EQMS platform specifically and exclusively for the medical device industry. So be sure to go check us out. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about how we can help, go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. And we'd be happy to have a conversation with you. As always, this is your host, the founder and VP of quality and regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.